But I have another drinks trend I wanted to talk about, David. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and uh, Ooh, let's hear it. get one here and uh, open it up. I'm looking at a can of something called Liquid Death. Welcome to Consumer Choice Radio, consumerchoiceradio.com. We're broadcasting to you on the Big Talker, 106.7 FM and Saga 960 AM. It's a great day here on the program. It's a great day to do radio. We're back in the month of June. I'm one half of your host, Yael Ososki, broadcasting to you from the Piedmont region of North Carolina. Uh, this is the last broadcast here before I depart these fair shores. And I'm joined, as always, by my trusty colleague, who sounds a lot crisper and a lot better this morning. That's David Clement over there in Toronto, Ontario. David, how goes it? Uh, it's going. It's going well. i got a brand new mic. Uh, looking forward to it. i got a whole rig set up here. I look uh, very fancy, very fancy. So excited about that. Not excited that the uh, Toronto Maple Leafs did as they always do, and they just absolutely collapsed. Um, probably, probably my lowest point as a Leafs fan. I really just feel like we're the Chicago Cubs of hockey at this point. It's uh, yeah, it's not bad. great. Yeah, not great. But we won't dwell on that. We have some some good things to chat about. Um, I know that you've been uh, looking at the hard seltzer and drinks market. You have a couple other things you want to chat about. Uh, so let's get right into it. All right. Yeah. There's a, a couple of things. So as you guys have heard me talk about on this program before. I'm a big fan of the hard seltzers, not just because of the product itself. I obviously think it's great and uh, can sling back a, a couple, you know, on a nice hot day. I think it's a really interesting market. I think it's a great innovation, and it just goes to show that the market delivers. And many of these hard seltzers, there's now, I mean, at least for me, when I go to the grocery store, that's right, the grocery store to buy alcohol, uh, which many people can, some people cannot do. When I go to the grocery store and look at the selection, you know, this is essentially a product that came out of nowhere a few years ago and now has so many different varieties. So many different companies have jumped in on this, and there's so many different flavors. And I have to say it's it's something, you know, a lot of people just don't recognize this type of innovation when it's right before our eyes. Uh, we haven't had much hostility to it. I think it has been uh, very successful. You do see a lot of influencers using this, the ads and the campaigns. So I appreciate the product, but I also love the design. I love the the logos. I love the branding. And I think they've just done an amazing job. And there's a New York Times article that came out this week. Uh, hard seltzers, apparently, $4 billion market last year. That's up from $500 million in 2018. Uh, we now have dozens of brands, all different types, uh, it really is a, a, type of, a type of revolution, David, and it's not just because I'm a, a big fanboy, but it's also just how product categories work and how consumer choice works, and that's something that we're very passionate about, and mm-hmm. it's been really cool to see that being delivered on our, uh, not even the grocery store sales, but also in bars. Uh, now that they're open, people can also order up a couple of, uh, of nice hard seltzers, too. Yep, yeah, get them, get them at bars, get them on the golf course. Um, I mean, some of the huge players in brewing 
have really expanded their operations. I think it was Molson just maybe a week ago announced that they were increasing their hard seltzer capacity by something like 300%. Um, wow. So w for a company that really has like its established brands and yet dabbles with some new products here and there, I would say it's probably the only time I've seen them launch a new product and then immediately have the demand to scale up rapidly. So um, that just goes to show you that people love this stuff, right? It's refreshing. It's it's tasty. There are all sorts of different flavors. Whether you're whether you're talking about White Claw or, or other brands, there are so many different flavors. In in general terms, they're very low calorie in comparison to some of your heavy craft beers and things like that. So there is like a health conscious angle to that, and they don't have all the added sugar of like a mixed like cocktail in a can per se. And so, um, all around just very interesting. It's a good, good, good product. Um, it's, it'll be interesting to see who comes out as the real winner here. I, I wonder what your take is on, I mean, White Claw is obviously like the industry leader for seltzers right now, but do you think that they'll hold that position or do you think that some of the other kind of new innovations are maybe going to chip away. Yeah, I think the there's been a lot of risks taken by Truly. Uh, so Truly is the one that's owned by the uh, Boston Beer Company. That's actually the Samuel Adams brand. And they've had, you know, their iced tea seltzers. They have tropical mixes. Uh, they even have their high alcohol percentage ones that are 8%. And uh, I took one of those, and that was a, that was a hard one. Uh, I, I, they'll get you. Yeah, and I think White Claw and Truly, from the article that I read, have about seventy percent of the market share right now. I think you know they were early on, probably the the two, I guess, most memorable companies. Uh, but there's also Topo Chico, which uh, is the partnership between Coca Cola and Molson Molson Coors. So that is uh, also very good. It's actually the only one that I've been able to get in Europe. So. <laughs> I guess uh, all the all the best. Uh, only three flavors, though, so it's uh, it's very slow. But that's the that's the kind of European market. But I have another drinks trend I wanted to talk about, David. And uh, I'm gonna go ahead and uh, Ooh, let's hear get it. one here and uh, open it up. I'm looking at a can of something called Liquid Death. Have you ever heard of this? <laughs> I have not. That sounds very ominous. Liquid Death. So it's a tall boy can. Uh, American product, liquid death, mountain water, drinking water from the Alps. So I actually okay. looked into this company. I've seen it on various podcasts. If you listen to the comedian Theo Vaughn and uh, some of the other, you know, marketers have it. Liquid death is actually a canned water. And the tagline is murder your thirst. And they've successfully raised tens of millions of dollars to sell this essentially in like places like Whole Foods and to 7-Eleven as water in a can. Now, the branding of it okay. is what is so interesting. It's a, it takes on the hardcore uh, sort of punk-esque nature, liquid death, like you even almost, read the side of it. Yeah, it almost looks like a, uh, like a monster energy drink. It does. And uh, here, here's part of the can here. When a group of teenagers set off into the mountains for a, week, for a weekend of drinking regular water in a plastic bottle, they became hunted by aluminum can of mountain water 
that was dead set on murdering their thirsts and recycling their souls. So the hashtag that they put on the site is also uh, one thing that you are, are talking about a lot, hashtag death to plastic. So Interesting. If you go Interesting. To their, if you go to their website, they have a lot of articles on plastic pollution and how essentially the uh, aluminum cans are more readily recycled and that basically buying this product and using it is like a punch in the gut for uh, what's happening with plastics. And the only other point to add to this, it was started by a guy who used to be a creative director at Netflix. He filed a patent in 2017. He just wanted to make it a sexy, cool, gothic type of canned water, and it comes from the Austrian Alps. Ooh, it comes from your neck of the woods. Very cool. Yeah, I mean... I. I have I've never tried it. I would love to try it. I assume it just tastes like water. <laughs> but well, it tastes like I, I mean I gave this to my Austrian wife who's very familiar uh-huh. with this water and she said that tastes exactly like Austrian water. There you go. <laughs> I, yeah, I can't say I know what Austrian water tastes like, but I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued. Maybe we can get some maybe we can get some, get some in Canada. Or maybe we could get them as a sponsor of the show. <laughs> Consumer Choice yeah, Radio. And, and by the way, all by... these brands that we're talking about, yeah, all these brands we're talking about, not sponsors. Uh, we are just the Consumer Choice guys. So we are, we're looking for trends. Uh, we're looking out. But what this product stands for, and it's somewhat similar to the hard seltzer, is that, you know, people want to go out and they want to have fun. They don't necessarily want to get uh, super tipsy or drunk. And particularly a lot of younger millennials and Generation Z or Generation Z, uh, they're not drinking as much. So to have, you know, this, uh, you know, pretty death nil, awesome looking aluminum can when you're out partying or in a, you know, in a mosh pit actually looks pretty cool, even though you're just drinking water. So you can hang out with the the folks who might be uh, chugging back their vodka tonics and whatever. And, you know, this is just where the market is delivering, you know, because there are a lot of teetotalers out there. You know, we, we kind of forget that. I know, David, you and I, we write a lot about policy on alcohol and focus on sort of the impact on cost and what it means for consumers. But there are a lot of people who just don't drink. And uh, that's something that a lot of companies are taking a look at now. And I think it's pretty interesting. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah, on, on that healthy uh, choice note, I got another one, another thing to bring up to you. So the government of Newfoundland announced this week that they are introducing a Pepsi tax they are going to tax soft drinks at 20 cents a liter um, in a year's time. And uh, I have some issues with the, uh, with the Pepsi tax. Um, I know you and I have, have talked about this at, a few times before, but a lot of people don't realize that these excise taxes on things like soft drinks have, so one, they're heavily regressive. So uh, I think the the province estimates that they're going to raise about $9 million a year from this tax. Most of the estimates on who pays that tax, um, it, it runs out to like $5.6 million will come from poor people. So, so it really is just a tax shouldered by low-income people in the province. And then it it barely moves the needle in terms of caloric intake. So, Yael, I, I'm going to pose a question to you. How many calories a day do you think a tax like this, on average, reduces for a person? Oh, come on, David. It's easily going to be a, at least 400 calories. <laughs> so, 
when the Green Party and PEI put forward the same, pretty much the same policy. Um, so in PEI, they have this process where they actually have to. That's uh, put, Prince Edward Island for yes, American listeners. Yes, yeah, Prince Edward Island, another province, very small province, kind of like Rhode Island. Um, so they have this unique process where they have to actually cost out their campaign proposals. Uh, I really like it because it, it adds some clarity for voters. And their own internal documents suggested that it would reduce caloric intake by a whole 2.5 calories per day. Um, so, I mean, that's like the equivalent of standing for a minute. <laughs> it's so, like a sip of a hard seltzer, actually. <laughs> so it, it, it's hilarious when people put these policy ideas forward. So one you're not making any meaningful impact on caloric intake or obesity. And two, you're soaking poor people to do it. Um, so just a terrible, terrible policy. I hope to have something published in Newfoundland on this shortly. Um, and, and just to get the word out that, guys, this is not the way to go. This is not, this is not good policy. And I, I think the, the first point you made about the caloric intake, that's one that is the hardest for people to gulp down uh if i can i i've had this debate um with let's say we'll, we'll say some interlocutors who also work in the policy field um basically doctors without borders guys and for them it's just to say well we have to do something obesity is a problem we have to do something yes this will hurt in the short term yes it'll disproportionately hurt poor people who don't have as much disposable income but we have to do something and I think it's that impulse, we got to do something that has led to so many bad ideas over time, David, that oh, is yeah. just, it's so problematic. And even here, I want to hearken back to one of our favorite uh, subjects. Uh, guess who wrote this op-ed? A soda tax would hurt Philly's low-income families. This is from 2016. Who might this person be? A fairly left-wing progressive senator from a state that might border... Our two countries. I don't. I, who would it have been? A soda tax would hurt Philly's low-income families, oh, says Bernie. Bernie Sanders. Bernie, we're Bernie Bros now. So Bernie's all in on the idea that soda taxes are regressive. They very much hurt poor people, and nice. essentially, this is the point. Again, this is why I like very honest and principled progressives because they believe in their ideas and just because something feels good they're not necessarily going to push it through again there's it doesn't apply to every topic but at least for this one we could see that bernie sanders not the biggest fan i mean i like that i mean this is something that should unite um your free market conservative st type people and your progressives because really it's like it's it's just it's perception policy it's, oh, well, if we do this, it symbolically suggests that we care about obesity and, and, and whatnot. And, and that's great, but we have to evaluate public policy based on whether it works. And what's funny is the, the best quote on this is from New Zealand. So the Ministry of Health in New Zealand commissioned a study, and the conclusion of that study was, we have yet to see any clear evidence that imposing a sugar tax would meet a comprehensive cost-benefit test. 
Um, so yeah, no, no good there. Um, we are running out of time before the break. We, uh, we do have Franco Terrazano of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation coming up next talking about gas taxes. Um, and so, yeah, it's, uh, it's going to be a good one. And we're back on Consumer Choice Radio. Uh, I have the pleasure of uh, introducing uh, our next guest. Uh, he is what we would call a friend of the show. He is now a return guest uh, to Consumer Choice Radio. Uh, very excited to uh, introduce the federal director for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, Franco Terrazano. Thank you again for joining us on Consumer Choice Radio. Hey, well, thanks so much for having me on again. Awesome, awesome. So, gas taxes. Uh, you have some gripes about the gas tax, and I'll let you take it from here. Let us know what do Canadians need to know about the gas tax. Yeah, we do have some gripes, as you put it. You know, every year we release up a report. It's called Gas Tax Honesty Day. And what we're trying to do here is we're trying to shine a light on all of the hidden taxes that Canadians are paying when we fill up our cars. And guess what? It's a lot of money. These taxes can account for up to 42% of the pump price here in Canada. So depending what province you live in, you could be paying a provincial and federal gas tax. You could be paying a provincial and federal sales tax. You could be paying a transit tax and a carbon tax when you fuel up. It's quite crazy, actually. In Montreal, drivers are paying six different taxes every time they fuel up their cars. That's, I mean, that's pretty considerable. I, I would imagine, given the inelasticity of gas, meaning it's something that we all pretty much have to consume with very little variation because it can be difficult to all of a sudden not have to commute to work um, or, or well in a future world where we're back to commuting to work. Um, I would imagine that this probably has some pretty regressive uh, effects on Canadians in particular low-income Canadians. I'm not sure if you've done any research on that or if you have any comment on that, but do we see this disproportionately impacting uh, lower income Canadians? Well, that's a very interesting question. So we don't have the research in terms of what income class is affected the most, but let's just, let's just think about how this impacts our day-to-day -day life. So we're talking about taxes here on, on our fuel up in Canada on average is about 45 cents per liter. That's just taxes, right? So that means it's 35 bucks. Every time a family fills up their minivan, they're paying that money just in taxes. That doesn't even talk about the actual fuel that they need to put in your car. Now, the reason why, as you say, it's inelastic is because, hey, we need to drive our cars to work. Like if you're living in Camborne, Ontario, and you work in Oshawa, you can't just take your unicorn to work, right? You got to drive there. Um, and, and let's just flip the switch just a little bit here. And let's talk about carbon taxes and why carbon taxes don't work. It's, it's because, as you suggest, there is this inelastic demand, right? So even if we look at British Columbia on our West Coast, where, where, our, where, where our friends out there have the dubious honor of paying the highest carbon tax in Canada, emissions continue to go up. And so, I mean, the environmental response here, the, the folks who support this policy because it's supposed to lead to environmental incomes, which I actually think, I mean, that's probably something that everyone can agree on. We just maybe disagree on the road to get to better environmental outcomes. So what you're saying here is that there isn't enough evidence to suggest that these, the, that these additional taxes are actually reducing 
the consumption of gasoline. Is that correct? Well, first, I, I have to agree with you in the sense that we all do care about the environment here in Canada, right? We, we, of course we do. I mean, we love our great outdoors. But, but I would even go even further than what you said and said, well, there is a lot of evidence and the evidence suggests that they do not work. Um, again, British Columbia, the highest carbon tax in Canada, federal government data shows emissions up 11% in the last four years, right? So they have lighter wallets, higher emissions. Let's look at across Canada. Uh, the Trudeau's carbon tax came in in 2019. Well, guess what? The first year of Trudeau's carbon tax emissions went up. Now, the thing that we need to remember when we're talking about the environment, especially when we're talking about greenhouse gas emissions, is that you have to take a global view. This is a global issue. You have to take a global view. Well, Canada only makes up 1.5% of global emissions. So even if the Trudeau government was able to grind our economy to a screeching halt, it's really not going to do anything for, for, for global emissions here. Yeah, we've heard that, that criticism a lot because obviously the developing world is um, the largest contributor in terms of emissions because that's really part of the process of developing. Um, it is understandably part of the reason why we afford the, a quality of the quality of life that we have is because we did have that high growth uh, mentality that really did lean on fossil fuels for so long. But this also raises another question in my mind uh, in terms of dependence on revenue sources that may dry up. So the government obviously, I would assume, is heavily reliant now on the tax revenue from gasoline. I could see a future scenario where we've made the, the, the transportation electrification shift. We have hydrogen buses or, or all sorts of other technologies and electric vehicles. Do you think that the government may be setting itself up for a huge budget hole, maybe not in the near future, but certainly in the medium future where if we do successfully transition away from fossil fuels in the traditional sense, they're going to be basically left holding an empty bag. Well, I'm going to go even further again and saying that we've already have a huge budget hole. <laughs> um, the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, one of the things that we've done is when we're talking about pipelines and talking about oil and gas is that we actually wanted to see how much tax revenue we're leaving on the table because of this pipeline deficit in Canada, right? Because of issues such as the rejection of the Northern Gateway pipeline, the, the moving of the regulatory goalposts on the Energy East pipeline. Of course, uh, our political system also chased away the Kinder Morgan company when it was trying to expand the pipeline. It was, it was going to use its own business dollars. Now we're billions of tax dollars being pumped into that uh, pipeline. Um, so we try to calculate how much money our government's actually losing because of this pipeline deficit, and it's billions and billions of dollars, and that is continuing to go up. Uh, so we're already losing a ton of money because of this oil and gas pipeline deficit. And remember, this is the money that we need to uh, pay for hospitals, pay for nurses, or, or extra money that we have to actually lower taxes and let families and businesses keep more money in their pockets. Now, when you're talking about the diversification of government revenues, the key there is not having governments pick which type of sector should be successful. No, the key there is to just allow for optimal economic growth, right? The greater the economy is doing, um, the more that businesses across all different industries, industries can succeed. And from that, the more money that governments can actually collect. Now, there's just one more point that I'd like to touch on in terms of the developing world. Um, oil and gas demand isn't going anywhere 
anytime soon. So the question is, where do we want the oil and gas to be coming from? And, and I say, of course, Canada helps us create jobs, helps us create that government revenue. And also it helps us get our oil and gas, our natural gas, to these types of markets in Asia that are trying to develop. Yeah, yeah, that's a, I mean, that's a good point. And, and on the pipeline question, I mean, we're certainly starting to see some worrying trends here where I am in Ontario and Quebec in terms of line five. I know Yael and I have discussed that at length, like what it would mean if that shuts down. And I think it perfectly encapsulates the, the whole pipeline debate. Now, this is a little bit beyond the, the, the idea of gas taxes, but it's certainly relevant is that when you don't have pipelines, you and I both know the alternatives are tankers, which are wildly unpopular, especially on our West Coast, uh, and trucks and trains. And I mean, you don't have to go far to talk to someone who remembers the tragedy in uh, Lac Magondique. I think I'm mispronouncing it, but um, horrific um, accident in regards to um, a train carrying uh, combustible uh, fluids and gasoline and whatnot. So it's one of those scenarios where in fighting pipelines, we're actually uh, incentivizing the use of riskier, more dangerous um, modes of transportation. Because as you said, I mean, yeah, I would love to see a scenario where we didn't rely on oil and gas in the same way that we did. And we could be, be a world leader in kind of showing the world how you can uh, decarbonize in a sense. But there, th that time frame is, is wider than most people maybe think. Um, and so in the short term, we're basically incentivizing these alternatives, which carry all sorts of risks. And like you said, really leaves a lot of money on the table in terms of economic development, because there are or there were. Uh, businesses ready and willing to build pipelines to to run across this country um, and to safely transport um, that much needed fuel. So I guess on the flip side, I mean, what would be, you, you've mentioned that, that growth is obviously important, um, techno, technological neutrality is important, but if we were to try and take a lens, so if if someone's listening to your arguments and say, okay, well, that makes sense. I understand why we don't want a gas tax. It's, it, it hurts people um, and, and arguably hurts the people we want to hurt the least, um, the, the most disadvantaged among us. What is, it, what is a viable solution in terms of protecting the environment while actually enabling growth? Because I know for a lot of listeners, they may agree with folks like you and I, but they, they, want, they don't want us to do nothing. So what should we do? Well, you know, we're not doing nothing when you talk about exporting our resources across the world. Like I said, you have to take a global view when you're talking about the environment, right? Increasing the cost for a struggling um, mom and dad to put fuel in their minivan, right? To take their kids to hockey practice or to heat their homes during the cold winter months that we all have here in Canada isn't doing anything for the global environment. That's why we're saying that a carbon tax 
is not an environmental plan, right? So that is doing nothing for the global environment. But when we're talking about actually exporting our resources all over the world, right, so that we can displace dirtier forms uh, of energy use in the developing world, that is a positive for the environment. It's surely a positive for economic growth. And it's, of course, a positive when we're talking about all these tax dollars that we would be able to use. Now, one thing I want to add with the whole pipeline conundrum that is taking place in the United States, to me, that tells us that we need to get our own house in order here in Canada. We need to clean our own backyard because we're, we're so reliant. We're even more reliant on politics in the United States because politicians here in Canada have made it harder to develop our own resources here at home, right? You, you're talking about line five, but not too long ago, we saw President Biden pull the presidential plug um, on Keystone XL. Now, one of the reasons, I mean, of course, this is, is very serious, but one of the reasons this is even more serious is because we've had a federal government that rejected Northern Gateway, because we've had a federal government that moved the regulatory goalposts on energies, because we have a federal government that implemented anti-energy development laws such as Bill C-69, uh, known as the No More Pipelines Law, and Bill C-48, known as the Discriminatory Tanker Ban. So all of this political uncertainty in the U.S. shows me that it's really time for us to clean up our own backyard here in Canada. Credits or, or subsidies for producers of electric vehicles. Have you guys done any work on the efficacy of that? I know, I know my own personal objection is those largely end up being tax subsidies for the very wealthy. Um, so if you use Tesla as example, and I don't have anything against Tesla as a company, and I want them to succeed in terms of making electric vehicles and things like that, but they are exponentially more expensive than their alternatives. And, and by creating a credit for those cars, it's essentially like a, a tax transfer to wealthy people. Um, but I'm just curious as to what your take is on if the government should maybe intervene in terms of trying to nudge consumers towards electric vehicles or hydrogen powered vehicles and things like that. Uh, no, no, the government shouldn't be doing that. I mean, to your point, you bring up the Tesla example, and it is a good it, it is a good example because it's currently happening, right? So we're essentially taking tax dollars from from many struggling Canadians, and through that type of program, subsidizing those who are more well off and and those who, quite frankly, don't need the subsidy to purchase a car like a Tesla, something of that nature. Now, when we're talking about uh, should bureaucrats, should government be directing which type of clean energy, let's call it, uh, that consumer should go to, I would say no to that as well. Um, for, for one of the main reasons is that within the market, you have all this knowledge dispersed throughout the entire market, right? Um, as opposed to when you have top-down planning from government, you have these bureaucrats who, let's just be honest, they don't know which way the market's going to go. They do not know which way uh, clean energy, clean technology is going to develop. And they don't know where the best use of our resource should be allocated for future clean technologies, right? The best way that we can do this is just to open up to have as much of a competitive playing field for all different types of technologies to compete with each other to see which one is best at the end of the day. That really does exemplify the process of development that we've had through throughout our history and how we've come to a state where we are producing cleaner technology than we did in the past. It was through that market process. Mm -hmm. So that's why we yep. don't want the bureaucrats uh, having their hands in the pie, so to speak. And, and with that, we have to go to break. Thank you, Franco, for joining us again on Consumer Choice Radio. Hey, it was my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. 
And we're back on Consumer Choice Radio, coming to you on Saga 960 AM in the Peel Region, Canada, and on the Big Talker 106.7 FM out of Wilmington, North Carolina. We were just chatting with Franco Terrazano from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation about gas taxes. And I have to say, as the recent purchaser of a new SUV, I do actually care about gas taxes, maybe a little more than I used to. Um, it's it's crazy when you see how much of the proportion of what you pay is actually uh, based essentially a tax or transfer to government. Um, it's not that gas is actually that expensive, it's just that we add so many taxes and fees and other nonsense onto it that it becomes so expensive. So uh, I know our... our neighbors to the south uh, also care passionately about the price of gas and gas taxes but luckily they don't um, they don't have the same level of government overreach per se in terms of how uh, how gas is priced oh it depends on the state definitely in California um, any California listeners would change their mind actually here let's do this test uh, last time you tanked up how much was gas by the way Ooh, like 130 a liter so one thirty a liter, uh, roughly about one dollar a liter uh, yep. U.S. And then we multiply that by four because it's four liters in a gallon. So it's essentially four U.S. dollars a gallon. Yep. Um, and then basically the last time that I tanked up here in the U.S. it was two sixty nine oh, a gallon. Holy cow! And that's actually fairly high comparatively. So. Uh, we're looking at a price of about 66 cents per liter. Oof. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yikes. And I, I, you know, and then, you know, Europe is, uh, usually about, it's up you there. know, you pay one, yeah, you pay 115 a liter, maybe 150, uh, Canadian. Uh, so it's not any better in there. The taxes are even worse than North America because people drive a bit less, but the, the gas tax stuff, again, it's, uh, again, regressive because, it's just another example, just like the soda tax. Everybody's got to buy gas, and buying gas for the uh, person with um, you know less income is going to hurt more than the uh, guy who has a Ferrari and you know is a hotshot lawyer and he's able to to scoot around. And it's not a big deal for him. Him, it's like 001 percent every week of his expenses. And for everyone else, um, you know, filling up your tank, especially if you have to commute now, is a big deal. Yeah, yeah, especially going back to. Um to pre-pandemic life when people are commuting that's when i mean realistically over the last year the price i haven't cared too much about the price of gas just because i have nowhere to go <laughs> but when uh when when people are starting to commute back to work and all of that jazz they're going to feel the pain um, because they'll have a lot less money in their pockets at the end of each week having to fill up at these prices so i mean it's one of those things too where it's like you're the idea is that if you tax gas more, people will use less of it. But the problem is, is that it's relatively inelastic, right? If you if you commute forty kilometers or twenty miles to work every day in your car, um, and there aren't viable public transit options, whether they take too long or they're just not there, you're driving to work regardless, and so you're just paying more. You're not actually reducing your consumption at all. Um, yeah, and so the maybe Italy- you'll, yeah, maybe you'll reduce you know the the large road trip, uh, sure. or something. But then that's lost economic activity. Uh, maybe you'll just spend your money elsewhere. 
And I have to say, David, having been in the in the U.S. now for, or I guess, over a month, I'm a bit radicalized. Um, you know, we've had to use the car to kind of get everywhere. Um, I happen to have lived in, you know, large cities where mass transit is a possibility. And if I can use it, it's great. There is one that is in the Charlotte area in North Carolina. I haven't been able to use it too much just because it's essentially you have to drive there. So it's not, you know, it's, it's not, uh, not that usable. Uh, back in Vienna, uh, we have a great public transit system and, you, you know, you can avoid a lot, a lot of this. And it is competition. But, you know, in many areas, it's just not possible. But, man, I would love to see it. And uh, there, there's something to say about walkable neighborhoods. There's something to say about, you know, building nice developments where people are able to walk to and fro and they're able to walk to the pharmacy or able to walk to the grocery store. Uh, I know most people, at least in North America, that's not really a possibility unless you live, you know, smack dab in the middle of a, a large city like Toronto, New York City. Mm-hmm. Uh, even if you live in Miami, you know, if you if you live in downtown, you're just looking at a bunch of buildings. There ain't too many stores there. Yeah, it's funny. So there was a good meme. Uh, I think I think this goes back to why a lot of these major European cities are just so much more like walkable. Um, it's because they were designed or built in an era where it was like, okay, we're going to make a grid of streets and sewers. We're going to have a center square and then build whatever you want. <laughs> and that's how things were for hundreds of years. And so that's like the framework that a lot of these cities are built on. Where for us here, it's like, oh, okay, you want to build that, you want to have a grocery store there. Well, it's not zoned for commercial, and it's like, well, maybe we shouldn't have that commercial designation. Maybe it is a good thing if we have grocery stores in neighborhoods um, rather than in like business sections of town. Um, I know that's a very common issue uh, with middle-sized cities. Is you basically have these hubs of commerce where everyone has to drive to as opposed to like the Houston model, which is very decentralized and open, where you can have you can have a, a convenience store, a grocery store, literally in the middle of a neighborhood. Um, it may look kind of strange at first, but it certainly makes for more livable cities. Yeah, and this is the kind of mixed-use zoning uh, that we've discussed before, or yeah. up-zoning. The idea that we just take the zoning uh, regulations to kind of throw them out the window— and uh, just allow developers to build where there is need. And, you know, it's tough. Uh, We're out here in the suburbs, and it's difficult, apart from, you know, the very core downtown of this area, to find a place where you're able to walk uh, to various stores uh, to get what you need. I mean, there's no grocery—I mean, I guess there's a convenience store. It's a Mexican convenience store down the street, and I can get pretty much most essentials there. It's great, and they love me, and I can practice Spanish— uh, but, you know, this is not uh, the most workable model for a large family where you need more food or you need more products and consumer choice. Uh, but the upzoning thing, I mean, we've talked about real estate prices and zoning and all the impact of that. It, it's just I don't see anyone who is proposing bolder solutions. There are some state representatives in California who discuss it. I don't know if there are key people in various Canadian cities, whether in Vancouver or Toronto, who are discussing that, David. But it really seems there's just a missing, just people missing in action on this. And yeah. there, there have been a lot of nonprofit groups that are NIMBY, not in my backyard, and they take that to the next level. And unfortunately, it seems there's not much leadership on really how to get good housing reform out there. Yeah, and the thing is, it's so it's decisions that are made at the local level, 
And the problem is, is that your local politicians are kind of just beholden to that very loud, vocal minority of people who just hate development. Um, they'll complain about everything. Oh, it's going to increase traffic or what about the schools? And you, I mean, it's a long, what, I mean, the most hilarious one uh, you hear is like, oh, well, what about the shadow that that building is going to cast? <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> really, we're going to justify not building houses because you don't particularly like the shadow that'll be there from January to March. Um <laughs> So, yeah, it, it, you have these local politicians. I see it here where I live. I see it in Toronto. I mean, that is, if you want to rally the troops to get elected to local office in in North America, and in particular Canada, you just hate development, and that's your ticket. And the problem is, is that you have federal politicians or even provincial politicians who know that this is an issue, but they really can't do too much um, I know some Democrats at the state level tried to counter this in California, but I really haven't seen much of that either uh, provincially or federally here in Canada. I, I will say the one politician I can think of uh, in a in a large market is Scott Weiner or Scott Weiner. I don't know his name, uh, but he's out there in California. He's an assembly man. Uh, some I you know some ideas are pretty bad that he has, particularly on economics, but on housing. He is a huge YIMBY supporter. Uh, he is someone who's constantly introducing bills to build more, build more, build more. And oftentimes he has been successful. And, uh, you know, California is its own market, and it's it's crazy. Uh, I will give a, a strong little fanboy moment here, David. Uh, I was, um, might out me as an ideologue, but uh, one of the walkable neighborhood communities here outside of Charlotte, uh, it's a place called Afton Village. And I've been going there, you know, the last couple of years. They got a nice bar. They've got, you know, a couple of nice restaurants. They even have some some very nice houses in the back. And then I started looking at the streets, and the names of the streets were like John Galt Way, Galt's Gulch Drive. It's like I think this Ooh. guy's secretly an objectivist. <laughs> so I, I looked up the developer and I sent him an email. It's like, hey man, you ever read Ayn Rand? And uh, I, I still haven't gotten a response. It's been about five years, <laughs> but. Uh, yeah, I was going to yeah, say, it's like, safe to assume he probably is an Ayn Rand fan. Yeah, it could be. It could be Howard Rourke Lane. Um, <laughs> you know, and I, I think the developers, you know, for, for many people, they're just kind of out of touch. You know, we don't see them. Uh, they're not the ones that are selling the houses. You know, that's the realtors. It's not Remax or any of these other large companies. And they're just kind of, many times, they're super beholden to the very Byzantine system that uh, politicians have laid for them. Even here, my parents' neighbor, uh, he wants to put a lap pool in his backyard and build a garage, and he has to get, because it's in the historic district, he has to get approval from all of the neighbors, and then there's a public hearing on whether he's allowed to build this. Mind you, none of this is visible from the street. It's all in his backyard, which is fairly large, but we're still going to have a public hearing, and anybody is free to come out and say they don't want that. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's just a bit... Why, if the guy's willing to put up the money to get a little lap pool and a garage, uh, you should go ahead and do it. Yeah, yeah. It's. I mean, I was once involved uh, years ago in one of those consultations, and just the 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 gall of some people to be like, "No, I don't want you to build a pool in your backyard, and I have no justification for it." But I'm going to flex my 
flex my influence with my local representative to stop you from building a pool. Although it will have no impact on my life whatsoever, other than that I don't like it. Um, it's just... Oh, it's jealousy. I mean, it's like, uh, it's a type of, like, avarice. It's, uh, I don't want you to enjoy your own property because I can't have that, or I don't want that. Yeah. yeah and unfortunately, there's not much focus on these local councils where most, most of, much of this happens, because I, I know there's probably so much insanity <laughs> and, and some of it that we don't even hear about. Uh, but just to know that, you know, people are weaponizing uh, these these hearings to try to make it so that you can't do your own renovations. Uh, yeah, that that seems very concerning. Yeah. I mean, I had one of these moments with <laughs> with uh, my own local representatives over bike lanes. Um, because they basically turned the whole neighborhood where I live into a fire route. So you can't leave your car like to un- unload your groceries. And th- the way in which we, uh, the houses are here, you don't have a driveway. So you really don't have a choice. Um, and, there, and, and there was just so much opposition to just letting people temporarily park. And then the bogus justification was, it was oh, well, we're, we're eventually going to build bike lanes. And it's like, guys, it's, it's snow. It's like cold and icy for six months you got another month of like garbage weather with like junk all over the road from the salt and the snow plows maybe don't build the bike lanes (laughs) like cool if people want a bike but let's not uh let's not ruin the quality of life over some weird idyllic version where people in on the outskirts of toronto are biking everywhere which is just never happening yeah, there's a lot of really bad city planners. Um, speaking of that, let's work to get uh, Nolan Gray on the radio show. He's someone who he's a good uh, dude. Has studied all of this city planners. He's written a lot in the Atlantic and uh, many other outlets. He understands this from a Yimby perspective. Um, it'd be good to have him on, David. Yeah, he would be great. It's funny. He actually, I I met him years ago as a student uh, when he was a student. So I've kind of watched him. Uh, Watched him grow up sounds weird, but I guess watched him grow up alongside me from from student to advocate. Uh, That's been a lot of fun. And we harbor no avarice here at Consumer Choice Center. We love to see people succeed, and we love to hear you succeed. Uh, So you have any stories of uh, awesome Consumer Choice like we've mentioned, write to us, hello at ConsumerChoiceRadio.com. David, it's been a pleasure. I look forward to catching up next week uh, once we're reunited again. Yeah, yeah. Until next week, thanks for tuning in. And uh, as always, send us your suggestions if you have them. And that does it for Consumer Choice Radio. Thank you for joining us for the hour and for all the other past shows and archives. Check out Consumer Choice Radio for much more. Consumer Choice Radio, hosted by Yael Ososki and myself, David Clement, is a syndicated weekly conversation featuring the latest news, interviews, and expert analysis that covers consumer topics from around the world, focusing on innovation, tech, regulatory policy, and science. Tune in every week to learn why consumer choice matters. You can find all of our previous episodes, interviews, and show notes over on ConsumerChoiceRadio.com, as well as the podcast version of this show. And, as always, be sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you do listen to your podcasts.
You can follow us on Twitter at Consumer C Radio, myself at Y-A-E-L-O-S-S, and David at Clement Liberty. And find our interviews on YouTube and Instagram, just looking up Consumer Choice Radio. If there is a consumer issue affecting you that you think that we should cover, email us directly at hello at consumerchoiceradio.com. Thank you again for listening. Hallelujah. Glory.